Well, let's grab our Bibles. Thankfully, somehow, my eyes have dried by the time I got up here. Uh, I just love worshiping with you all. Um, let's grab our Bibles and turn to the letter of Titus, right? Letter that Paul wrote to his disciple and companion, Titus. And while you're turning there, um, I want to tell you about this book right here uh, called Sound Doctrine. It's from the Building Healthy Churches series from Nine Marks. Sound Doctrine uh, endorsed by Mark Dever, J.I. Packer, J.D. Greer. I love um, the description that's here. This is a fantastic little book. And, and it says this at the back. This short, readable book shows how good theology leads to transformation, life, and joy. And it's true. Now, if that's confusing to you or interesting to you or compelling to you, and you're interested in this book, I will give it to you maybe uh, right now. If Just raise your hand. Okay? All right? Uh, so there's a few of you. All right? That's why I said maybe keep your hands up. Go ahead. Stand up. Go ahead. Stand up. Go ahead. All right. So I'm going to auction this book. If you will read this book uh, this month... Um, stay standing. Okay, if you will read this book this week, stay standing. Wow. <laughs> okay, all right. Honesty in church. Honesty in church. Okay, if you will read this book before, the, before you go to bed Monday night, stay standing. Oh, wow. All right. All right. Diana, here you go. Wait, wait. You too. Just see Tim. Tim, wave your hand. Okay, you too. And Zabby, I think you're still standing for the book. You just see Tim after the service. Give him your name and email address. We'll make sure you get a copy of the book for free as well. Thank you for participating in our auction for the book, Sound Doctrine. And it's apropos, right? That wasn't just for fun, although it was fun, wasn't it? Um, that wasn't just for fun. It's apropos. Today, we're really talking about the idea of sound doctrine. So turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, the end of chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, just raise your hand and our ushers will bring you a Bible. If you don't have one of our bulletins, these are going to be especially helpful for you today. The sermon notes on the back here are rather detailed and will help you keep track. So if you don't have a Bible or a bulletin, just raise your hand and we'll get you one of those in the next few minutes. Okay, so we've been in the series here in Titus. Let me do a little recap. We started with noticing how the, the letter to Titus starts with a complete focus on God. Because that's who ultimately the church is for. Our series is called Church Matters. This is a letter about church matters. And we notice how Paul opens up his letter in regards to its focus on God. The church is for God. God has won for himself a people to be his possession. Now, there's lots of things that the church does, but the church is first and foremost oriented vertically to him. And that's why we called that message vertical 
matters. The next two messages came right out of this first chapter of Titus in regards to the qualifications for elders, what an elder is to be. And we called those two messages, part one and part two, leadership matters. And now, here we are at the very end of chapter one. The title of our sermon today is Correction Matters. Correction Matters. How important is sound doctrine? How important is sound doctrine in the church? We've, we have experienced in this last 50 years, maybe 100 years, a, a true devaluing of sound doctrine in the church worldwide, really worldwide, especially in America. The, the, uh, the idea was hey, the doctrine divides. Let's just lower the standards when it comes to um, correction in sound doctrine and, and keep that kind of off to the sides. Doctrine doesn't really matter that much. If you're sitting here this morning, you may or may not feel that way. Uh, chances are you probably feel that sound doctrine is important, at least for me, right? Josh, study well, get up, cut it straight. Let's have sound doctrine from the pulpit. Awesome. Let's not end there. Let's not end there. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, how important is sound doctrine throughout the church? How important is sound? Is it important enough to have hard conversations? Is it important enough to warn people away from unsound doctrine just in conversations that you have with one another? Or that church leadership might take someone aside and warn someone against sound doctrine. You, you might hear somebody in your small group that they're, they're, just, um, they're just junking out on Joel Olstein. Yeah, I'll name names if I'm sure, right? <laughs> if I'm sure, I'll name names. And is it important enough to say, hey, I need to talk to you about that. If we were to just summarize it all into a sentence today, we'd, we'd say it like this. I would say it like this. The stakes are real. Real people, real health, real freedom, real ministry. Let's fight falsehood. Let's read this passage here together. Starting in verse 10 through verse 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And bagging on his own folks. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow, that's, that's, that's really like a hard passage. Um, that's a hard passage. 
Do you see there what's at stake? Do you see what's at stake? Paul spreads it throughout that entire paragraph. Here, here's what's at stake. At least we see this right at the beginning of this passage. What's at stake is real people are at stake. Real people are at stake. Verses 10 and 11 say, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, right? Especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families. You can see the motivation right there. They're upsetting whole families. Now, upsetting here is not like, oh, they're so upset. He got me upset. That's not, that's not the word. The word here is the same word that, that the New Testament uses for Jesus flipping over tables in the temple, right? He upset those tables, right? He overturned them. He wrecked them. Boom. And that's what's happening with false doctrine in the churches here in Crete. They're being families, whole families, including all, you know, people and whole families are being upended, flipped, wrecked. Unhealthy doctrine wrecks real people. It's not academic. It's not theoretical. Real people get wrecked, giving all of their money away, all of their family's money away to word of faith ministries so that charlatans can get rich. Real people get wrecked because they swallow some easy believism, a false gospel that all I have to do is have some head knowledge about who Jesus is and pray a prayer, and then my eternity is settled, and I can just go on living however I want to live. And I don't really have to hand my life over to Christ. I can just sort of like acknowledge some true things about him and then go on deluded about their eternal state. That's wrecked. Real peoples even have their bodies wrecked by falsehood. I, um, I know a woman. Thankfully, she survived this incident. She's a, she's a grown woman now and has children of her own. I know a woman who, when she was 15 years old, her parents got sort of swept up into this twisted, fundamentalist sort of um, false teaching. And it involved a very rigorous type of eating, right? Some sort of Bible diet. And she was sincere. This 15-year-old was sincerely uh, working to please the Lord and live out the tenets of this teaching. So that at age 15, she was hospitalized weighing 50 pounds. And as the hospital staff put good, healthy food in front of her. And she, she complied with the pleas of others to eat healthy food. And she swallowed that food. She couldn't help thinking, God is going to be so disappointed in me. What happened? So real people wrecked by false teaching. False teachers twisted her conscience and twisted the consciences of her parents. False teaching wrecks real people. 
And I tell that story in regards to a, a, a young girl's body just because the signs are so clear and obvious there. You can see the damage that's being done, but many times you can't see the damage that's being done in a person's soul. So what are some warning signs of false teachers? What are some warning signs that we get right here in the way Paul characterizes these false teachings? false teachers that might help raise some yellow flags for us at least. Now, I, I do want to say that there are different levels of responsibility when it comes to correcting false teaching. Like clearly, Paul starts this paragraph with the word for, the word because. And the previous passage, the previous paragraph, he's talking about elders, right? Titus, you need to appoint elders because they're going to have the most direct responsibility to protect the doctrine of the church. And that's true. The shepherd's staff is really kind of put in their hands. But that doesn't mean that believers throughout the church don't need to exercise discernment and correction alongside those elders, right? Elders and, and believers throughout the church should be working together, not apart, together to protect the sound doctrine of the church. And, this, and the doctrine that's going into our friends' and family's ears. So what are some warning signs? Watch this. Watch how they handle these things. Characterized right out of here from Titus. Watch how they handle this. One, authority. Watch how they respond to authority. See what Paul calls them here? Insubordinate. These teachers were insubordinate. Paul had authority that was given to him directly by Jesus Christ as an apostle. And then Paul delegated that authority to Titus. And then Titus was going to delegate that authority to the elders. But you know what? These people weren't going to have it at all because they were insubordinate. You can watch how a person handles authority, handles and responds to authority. And that can tell you a lot. Can tell you a lot. Watch how they handle this. Speculation. See what Paul calls them? He calls them empty talkers, nonsense talkers. Boy, you know, I tell you what, some of the false teaching that is out there is just bizarre. Wild, crazy end times speculation and other types of just, just Bible code stuff. Like wild speculation that you can't see directly from Scripture and say, yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. And then we've got whole cottage industries of people specializing in stuff that's really, really hard and obscure to see in here. Speculation. Nonsense talking. Watch how they handle this. Honesty. Honesty. Paul calls these people deceivers deceivers. And chances are, if someone is lying about something, it's not the first time they ever lied. <laughs> Watch how people handle rigorous honesty. Watch how people handle rigorous honesty. And so then when they, 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 they are brave enough to speak up, this is eternal truth, and they haven't really been so truthful about what's happening in small group, Watch how they handle honesty. Watch how they handle externals. Externals. You'll see here that th these were of the circumcision party. I can't imagine what kind of party that is. But anyway, <laughs> externals. They were focused on externals. Like the circumcision party were those who said, you must be circumcised and observe the Jewish uh, rites in order to gain favor with the Lord. 
externals. Although the Cretans weren't Jewish, they were pushing these externals on them. And we, that's a yellow flag, man. That's a yellow flag. People start measuring up your righteousness based on all these externals. Careful. Watch how they handle this. Self-profit. Right? Paul describes these people and then he says, and they're doing this for shameful gain, no less. There was one one ministry ministry that was trying to raise money so that their um, head teacher could could have the most state-of-the-art private jet that he could go from gig to gig on, right? And, And people just throw money at these ministries without without discerning what these teachers do in regards to that money. Now, Paul has already established in the New Testament that that ministers can or should be paid, right? There's nothing wrong with paying someone. I believe in it. (laughs) You should too. Right? Paul says those who minister by the gospel should and could gain their living from the gospel, and that's fine. But watch their motives. Watch how they handle self-profit, greed. Huge, huge red flag. Because real people are at stake. This isn't just like spotting false teachers for sport. although it can be sporting, real people are at stake. People are spiritually starving when Christ died to provide a banquet of spiritual food that would nourish and satisfy and bring strength. Real people are living spiritually penniless lives when Christ died to provide the riches of the truth that's found in God's word and contentment in it. Real people are living lives of darkness and defeat and completely enslaved to sin when Christ died to forgive them of that sin and break the power of sin in their lives so they could live in true victory and conquer that sin. Not living in sinless perfection, but living in sin-beating progression. Victory. Christ died for that. What's at stake? Real people. What else? Real health. Real health. Real spiritual health comes from real truth. Sound doctrine. Which, of course, raises the question, how seriously should we struggle for sound doctrine? And if you know this passage, you know, you know the answer. Let's say it this way. True health is worth fierce struggle. True health is worth fierce struggle. Let's start by just looking at the end of verse 13. It says, that they may be sound in the faith that they may be sound in the faith. So you can see that that's the aim here, that they may be sound in the faith is what the struggle is all about. The the treatment outcome of this surgery is spiritual health, doctrinal health. 
And, and the word here, sound, means healthy. It's, it's the same word that is used in, in Luke 7 when there's the story of the centurion servant, right? A, a Roman officer sends friends to Jesus, it's telling Jesus, uh, my servant is sick. He's at the point of death, but you just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus remarks about the man's faith and sends his friends back. And when they arrive back to the centurion's house, there is the man, sound, healthy, real health. And that's the word that Paul uses about doctrine here, Christian understanding, that people would have true spiritual health. That's what's at stake. So he tells Titus, it's worth the fierce struggle. It's worth it. What fear struggle? Well, let's, okay, let's read verses 12 through 14. He says this. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I don't know why that always cracks me up. <laughs> this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who are turning away from the truth. So what's with this Cretan bagging on his own people? Um, well, first of all, Paul is not legitimizing this Cretan prophet as like a true biblical prophet. He's just using the same term that is used there. Like they call him a prophet. Um, the point that he's making here is that, Titus, you're dealing with a rough culture. You're dealing with a rough culture. Every culture is broken. Every culture is, is missing the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Every culture is broken. It's made of men and women. However, that brokenness manifests itself differently sometimes. Some cultures are different than others when it comes to the willingness to listen and be corrected or, instruction, or instructed, right? I think you've probably observed that for yourself, that some cultures and some people are different when it comes to instructability, teachability. Remember from Acts 17, right? The people from the city of Berea, right? The Bereans, they didn't have the saving grace of Christ, but by common grace, they've been given a noble teachability, right? They heard the gospel, they checked the Old Testament, they saw the truth, and they believed. Praise God for those people, right? You can just handle a sweet Georgia peach differently than you can handle a sour crab apple <laughs> from some abrasive, unnamed northeastern state. God love them. Or, or a prickly pear. You, 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 you just can handle them differently. <laughs> I actually think people are claiming the prickly pear thing for themselves. That's what's going on out there right now. Well, Titus doesn't get any sweet Georgia peaches here at all. He's in Crete. And so Paul says here, rebuke them sharply. The Cretan people, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. 
Of course, elsewhere, 2 Timothy 2, uh, 25, he says, correct your opponents with gentleness. Here's the principle, and I wrote it down like this. Biblical correction, as gentle as it can be, as sharp as it has to be. As gentle as it can be, as sharp as it has to be. Which means, men who would be elders, it means we can't let blustery, abrasive people, crab apples, prickly pears, go uncorrected because we're afraid of conflict. Brothers, sisters, this means that let's be Bereans and not Cretans. Let's not, let's not claim the prickly pear mantle for ourselves as a badge of honor, right? Let's be Bereans, not Cretans. Let's be people who can be gently instructed, not requiring a sharp rebuke. Hebrews 13, 17 says, let your leaders enjoy leading you, not groan over it, because that is an advantage to no one, Right? But nonetheless, as a church, let's just not shy away from correction. It's biblical. Even when it's hard won. Even when it's hard won. These are souls for whom Christ faced the cross. So we can face some conflict. These are souls for whom Christ faced the wrath of God, so we can face some wrath of people, right? Let's not shy away from correction even when it's hard won. So what's at stake? Real people, real health, and also this, real freedom. Real freedom. We could say it like this. Freedom and bondage hang in the balance. Freedom and bondage hang in the balance. I can't help but think of that 15-year-old girl again trying desperately not to disappoint God by failing to eat according to some Bible diet and her mom's twisted brand of fundamentalism that's vaguely connected to the Old Testament. That's bondage. Not the freedom that Christ has saved us to. That's the sort of thing Paul is talking about here in this verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Right? We can see from, from verse 10, right? he's talking about the circumcision party. And then chapter 3, verse 9, quarrels about the law. Right? And we can see right here from the verse just before this about Jewish myths. Right? What, does, what does Paul have in mind? He has in mind people who are misusing the Old Testament. Maybe some other Jewish writings too. And then all the ways they're misusing the Old Testament aren't spelled out, but it's not too hard to read between the lines, right? Observance of the Jewish law by Cretan Christians, who were never given the law to begin with, as a way of living in purity before God, which can only be done in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And that's freedom. 
In other words, instead of trusting Christ as enough for salvation, which is freedom, they taught that purity before God means you can't eat this, you can't drink that, which is going to make Super Bowl parties really hard. (laughs) Or you can't do this on that day. Or you must do this or that external thing. Bondage. Listen, Christ fulfilled the law in total purity. When you truly hand your life to him, he hands you that purity. All things are clean for you. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That Paul's fighting that falsehood and bondage in Galatia and then fighting it in Crete and fighting it in Corinth, what makes you think we're not going to have to fight it here in San Antonio? It's just been for, it's always been around. And I'll bet that 15-year-old girl wished someone had fought for her. The stakes are real. Now, about this conscience thing, I'm sure you're wondering. This conscience thing in verse 15. See, the faith in the grace of our Lord and, and the sound doctrine of that faith progressively informs and straightens out your natural God-given conscience so that you become more sensitive to what is truly a part of Christ's character and truly not in you. What's out of step with his character? Your conscience gets straightened out and informed by sound doctrine. But a conscience that isn't being straightened out or informed by the truth of the gospel just gets more twisted and enchained and conscripted and commandeered, not in the true fight against sin, but in the fake fight of attempting to do through externals what only Christ can do in the heart. Your own conscience has been enslaved if you subscribe to false doctrine. That's the difference between freedom and bondage. And in Christ, there is freedom. So what's at stake? Real people, real health, real freedom, and then this, last and briefly, real ministry. Real ministry. We could say it like this. Good work fits good workers, not good talkers. Good work fits good workers, not good talkers. You see how prominent the theme of talk is throughout this whole passage, right? Verse 10, empty talkers. Verse 11, they must be silenced. Verse 12, here's what a Cretan prophet said, and his testimony is true. And then here, verse 16, they profess. It reads like this. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. The talk is important. I've been doing it for about 30 minutes now, and I still believe in it. I've given my life to the proclamation of God's word without apology. 
And words are important, right? Paul wrote words to Titus. But real ministry is done by those whose words for God and works for God align. I, I used to, as a, as a young pastor, a young elder at, at uh, another church, be too quick to just go with the good talk. Some people just know all the right things to say. They just know all the right things to say. They've been around a long time. They know all the lingo, or they just pick it up really fast, and they just know all the right things to say. And, you know, I always mistook good talk for maturity. I say always. It was a period, there was a period there. And I remember you know, at a previous church, we needed small group leaders so bad. And people would show up to church, and they would drop right in, and they would, um, they would talk the talk. And I would go to the senior pastor. I'm like, hey, man, we need small group leaders. Let's go. Let's Shovel them out there, man. We need small group leaders. And he so wisely would say, let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. Let's see if the words for God and the works for God align. And you know what? Many times they did. Many, many times they did. But sometimes they didn't. And that would have been a disaster. Right? Right? Because the work is too important. The work is too important. Paul is giving his life to the work. Titus is giving his life to the work. I am giving my life to the work. You are giving your life to the work. And it's too important to miss this point. Real ministry gets done by those whose words for God and works for God align. We're wise to stop and wait. And watch and see. And not, have you, not only have you given your life to this, Jesus Christ gave his life for this. I'm going to ask the band to come on up and we're going to close here in just a second. But you can see the work is, is too important not to correct and the work is too important to not receive correction. What if we were a church, what if we were a church that all throughout, every one of us, we fought falsehood? We corrected it. We resisted it. At the appropriate levels of responsibility, we're not trying to create like a gang of discernimentalists, right? But that doctrine was important to the life of this body and we took responsibility for it. Giving and receiving biblical correction, as gentle as it can be, as sharp as it has to be, not from some hard-headed need for everyone to have the same opinion, but because the stakes are real, right? Real people, real health, real freedom, real ministry, Correction matters. It matters to the Lord whom we worship. Would you stand with me all over this place and let's go to him in prayer.